We'll start in three, <laughs> two, one. Welcome to Managing Expectations, the podcast. This is episode 20, a production of the Pacific Century Media Company. I'm your host, Jeff Winger. With me, as is the case on all the best days, is my aide-de-camp, Brian Grimm. Howdy, Brian. Good afternoon, Jeff. Great to be with you, as always. Thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, this is the Managing Expectations podcast, uh, where we uh, talk about interesting people and the things that make them interesting. And we couldn't be happier to have with us today friend of Managing Expectations, Chris Galley, who, among other things, um, uh, blow, uh, plays the saxophone, blows that horn. Blow, daddy, blow. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing fine, Jeff. How are you? Brian, good to see you both. Yeah, great to see you too, Chris. Nice to have you with us. I do have a question, though, right away. I mean, you introduced Brian as your aide-de-camp. That yes. makes you a military officer, as it does Brian. What branch of the military are you serving in? Um, I, I'm an <laughs> army of I'm an army of one, Chris. Okay. <laughs> and what rank are you? Um, Brian. Well, I'm, if I have an aide de camp, I must be a general, right? You, you should be at least. Yeah, at least have one star. Yeah. Oh, I see stars quite a bit. Yeah, I'm sure. And because this is the Managing Expectations podcast, we're looking for a few pretty good men. <laughs> good men, yeah. A few <laughs> adequate men. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Remember the, the old Saturday Night Live when uh, Garrett Morris did a parody on the Marines? We're looking for a few good men, and it was, it was a silent uh, video of him in New York City just walking up to various men and whispering in their ears, and then people rejecting him as if it were, you know, something, <laughs> something sexual. <laughs> I don't remember that. Um, you know, Garrett Morris uh, came out of, I don't know, retirement of some sort and what had a recurring role on, um, uh, what was that, two, two chicks in New York waiting tables. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, know, I know the show. The, there was a tall blonde who was like a two Paris. Girls or something. What was it? Two broke was girls. Two broke girls. Yeah. 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 Two broke girls. So um, uh, Chris was showing. Chris indulged in a, a new horn, uh, a, a new uh, sax. Uh, it was like a Kalashnikov fifty-six. Tell us about that, Chris. Yeah. Let me. Let me. Let me get it for you. Hang on. Okay. Who looking at the white wall behind me? Well, it's a podcast, so nobody's looking at anything. They're just hanging on my every word. Well, hopefully they're walking the road. on the radio, enjoy looking at the wall. Okay, so this is a uh, Selmer Reference 54 tenor sax. And I just got it. It, it was my present from, um, from me to me with Patty's approval. Um, That's Mrs. We Galley. Mrs. Galley because we moved from Arizona, which I did not want to do, but I took one for the team. And, uh, and as a result, I got, I got to buy myself something nice. So I bought this. Cool. It's called a Reference 54. 
because in 1954, Selmer, which is, in my opinion, the makes the best saxophones, the French invented saxophone. So, um, you know, the, the DNA of saxophone all stems from 19th century France. But in 1954, they um, produced a, a, a horn, tenor, alto, soprano, baritone called the Mark VI. And anybody who is anybody in music has either, either owns a Mark VI or has played a Mark VI. And uh, I actually was thinking of buying a Mark VI because when I was in the military and I played in the army band, they issued me a Mark VI. And all of a sudden I thought I could play better because I had a better horn. Well, uh, so after I got out of the military and I was on my own, I couldn't afford a Mark VI. So I bought the successor to it, the Mark VII. And the Mark VII got a bad rap. Uh, so there was a little more plastic on it. So for instance, you see the thumb here is brass, thumb okay. holder. On the Mark Seven, it's plastic, okay. um, but the big, the big difference is these keys right here, where my pinky is. Okay. Uh, on the Mark Six, it's mostly, almost exactly as you see it here. On the Mark Seven, they they extended this key and put a deeper dent in it, which means unless you have the fingers of a basketball player, hitting the low notes with your pinky is going to be more work. And so, you know, I've been gigging for 40 years and um, just got tired of it and decided I wanted a, a better design horn. So uh, the Reference 54 was named as named uh, what it is because of its similarity to the Mark VI. So it is better ergonomically. The Mark VI had some inherent intonation problems. Uh, for, and I'll give you an example where you could hear one in popular music. So have you ever listened to Bruce Springsteen dancing in the dark? Uh, I've heard it once or twice. Yeah. Uh, at the end when Clarence plays his solo. Yeah. Right. The, the, the last note he hits before he takes a breath, listen to it closely. It's, it's a concert A, it's a B on, on the Mark six, which is one of those notes, one of the few notes that's out of tune and you could hear it on there. Uh, and in fact, it was a joke. My musician friends and I, when we first heard the song, was like, what did he, what did he play there? But anybody who played saxophone knew what it was. It was, it was a, a note that's out of tune just because of the design of the horn. Um, so uh, the, the reference 54, I broke it in. Um, I played uh, two rehearsals with a rock band locally, but I really broke it in on Wednesday night when I played with uh, my friends out in Aurora in a jazz band. And that, uh, and they all commented um, that the tone of it was far superior to the Mark Seven when it comes huh. to playing. Uh, um, and you can you, you can honk on it, you know, it'll 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 shatter glass like the Mark Seven does. But the the problem with the Seven is that um, uh, besides the pinky keys, uh, it takes a lot more air. This one you can there's a little more finesse. It's a it's a uh, uh, more of a rounded sound. It's a fuller sound. And it's funny when I when I got the horn a couple of weeks ago, um, I unwrapped it and just started blowing on it. And Patty remarked right away. She says, I can tell the difference right away in your sound. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm uh, very happy with it. Um, I'm going to be careful how I uh, how I use it. Uh, you know, like tomorrow, I'm playing at a neighborhood gathering here in Centennial and we're outside. I'm not bringing this horn. Okay. Uh, I'll bring, I'll bring the, the battle axe and it'll be fine because we're playing rock, whatever. But for any of the jazz gigs that I do, it's going to be this one. Okay. Uh, I, I know that 
like guitarists, uh, though, it seems to be like a, a, a Ford Chevy sort of chauvinism where like some guys are Telecaster guys and other guys are Stratocaster guys. And I don't know, give, I, I mean, does that sound right? Is that same thing? To, um, to an, not as bad as guitars, but yeah, to an extent. Um, you know, there's a, if you go back to the glory days uh, up and uh, I would say up until the late seventies, um, there were only a handful of saxophones that would be used by the pros. And it was either going to be a Selmer or it was going to be a Khan or it'd be a Martin uh, or a King. And, and then there are a few others. And then the Japanese started making them. And um, Yamaha made, uh, makes an excellent horn. Okay. Uh, Yanagazawa makes an excellent horn. Um, and they're, they're ergonomically designed, they're different, but it's the difference between, if you know what a German, German car versus a Japanese car, right. the steel on a German car is, is meant to take the brunt yeah. uh, versus the frame, right? It's kind of the same with the horns. It's more, it's mo more finesse, but when you get down real low and you get up really high, you, know, you got to be really careful that it doesn't either honk too loud or sound tinny. Um, and then the Chinese came along and made just crap. They still do. Um, and they, they have the same design as the Mark VI, but it's just, it's just you know, this horrible third grade composite metal and, and they sound awful. Uh, but they're easy to play. So, you know, people pick them up and they start blowing on them and they think they sound good and they don't. Uh, where you really find the uh, Ford versus Chevy is on the mouthpiece. And let me, uh, let, me, let me school you a little bit on that. Give me one second. I'm gonna okay. grab my other mouthpieces real quick. So it's like, as I recall from, you know, band, uh, when I was in high school, they, they would have to uh, swap out their reeds. It, well, yeah, it, dep it depends. So let me, this is the, um, this is called a C-Star. This is the mouthpiece that came with the horn, Selmer C-Star. Okay. Uh, it, it's it's um, made out of a... Uh, Actually, this feels like plastic. They used to be made out of hard rubber. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's an okay. It's just middle of the road, nothing really good about it. It's not an expensive mouthpiece. Um, but you can upgrade. Doubtful a pro would play one. Oh, it's, it's required that you upgrade. Um, this is uh, called a RIA, R-I-A. And RIA was, was made up until... I think the late eighties and the guy that designed it died and rumor has it that he didn't leave any um, plans behind. So they can't make any more Rias. You can't find them. Uh, I bought one of these for my tenor and for my alto brand new back in the early eighties. And now they're actually worth a lot of money. What I like about the Ria is it is similar to the reference 54. It is, it is a, a mouthpiece that you can do beautifully with jazz. And I mean, smoother jazz, you know, lighter stuff. And you can and you can rock on it too, but it's not designed for rock. But it will rock if you you know if you play it. And you can see from uh, the the teeth impressions that I, I used it quite heavily over the years. Uh, this is called. Have, have, have you have you have you received several uh, stern talking tos from your dentist about about digging your teeth into the metal rhea? Uh, no, but you could see. Mm. Oh, Actually, that's, that's hard plastic at the top um, that I was digging into, not the metal. 
Okay. So that little, that's that white circle there is actually plastic. Okay. So and then, and then a reed does slide into that mouthpiece, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll show you that in a second here. Uh, okay. So this, this this is a this is a Dukoff D U K O F F. A lot of pros play this one. Um, Clarence uh, settled on this for the latter. I don't know, 15 years of his life, he was using the Dukoff. And the reason he did, rumor has it, I don't know that it's documented anywhere, is these things are just power, power mouthpieces. Um, they'll, they'll blow through anything and they have a real fat sound to them. Um, and, you, and of course you can see the hard rubber there. And you can get them, um, you know, either uh, to accommodate a soft read or a harder read, something in the middle. Mine is a little bit open, a little bit more open, uh, because I intend to use this for, for playing um, with the rock band. Because, okay. you know, saxophones, even though they mic, mic you, it's really hard to hear yourself. So you have to be able to, to, to cut through that sound so you know where you are and you're not playing out of tune. And then this one, this is my favorite mouthpiece. This is a Berg Larsen, B-E-R-G, Berg Larsen. And uh, it's, it is a European mouthpiece. This is, Clarence used this very mouthpiece for years and years. Bobby Keys from the Rolling Stones used the same one. Lenny Pickett uses it. Um, it's, it is fantastic for rock. And it's really good for like, uh, for acid jazz. It's good for mainstream jazz. It's, it's a really good versatile mouthpiece. Would not want to play classical on it. It wouldn't do very well. Um, and, and this one also is an original, and I read somewhere that they um, changed the, the composite on these somewhere along the line, and the metal isn't as good as it used to be. Um, I just bought one for my Alto, a brand new one, and I'm trying it out. I haven't noticed the difference, though. It seems, it seems the same quality to me. And the reed that you see on here, the, it's, the black on it is actually plastic. Uh, this is a Rico plastic cover reed. Um, plastic cover, th there's lots of debates about this, whether it changes the sound or not. Um, eventually, you can, you can make whatever sound you need to out of it. But the advantage that you have with it is that reeds will warp. And uh, let's say you're, you're playing a show and uh, the band takes a break and it's, um, it's cold in the place and a little bit dry. And even though you put your cap on, 20 minutes goes by, 25 minutes goes by, that reed's going to start to warp. Really? And that fast? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's made out of cane. They're very fussy. But, you know, I mean, the good side part of it is that when you have a good reed, you can't, that sound is nirvana. It's just beautiful. But the bad of it is that um, they take a lot of work. Reeds are not uh, for the faint of heart. In fact, in my... Uh, my office right next to it, I have a bathroom and there's a bowl in there and there's six reeds soaking right now so that they'll, uh, so that the fibers will be nice and, and um, pliable. And then what you do is you rub on the fibers, you rub them, you rub them, you rub them, and then finally you play it once and then you let it sit and you play it again. There's a whole science to it. Some of it's art, but most of it's science. But this, it's blow and go. So, um, you know, I, I use these a lot. I practice with them a lot. They last a lot longer. Than, uh, than the cane reeds do. And yeah. the other thing with cane reeds is you, you could you take a look at the bottom there, the, the arc uh, from left to right, that thickness is precise. Um, now they've gotten better at this, but for years, uh, cane reeds, 
you would have a micrometer larger or shorter, uh, th thicker or thinner on one end or the other, and it would change the read or the read would just be no good out of the box. And uh, when I was um, heavy into clarinet playing for orchestras and stuff like that, boy, that was annoying. And I finally switched to, um, to an all acrylic read uh, for actually crystal read for clarinet, which was, you know, mixed blessing. They were really expensive. They lasted forever unless they chipped. And then when they chipped, they, you had to throw them out. So um, they make fiber cell reeds for, for saxophones too. And I, I've got one of those. Um, they're a little bit harder to get the same depth of sound on for me. Um, but if you're just out there honking and blowing and, and doing, you know, fills for, um, for brown sugar or whatever, uh, they work just fine. Um, the um, I'm always uh, I'm always amazed when I talk to a real musician, uh, and and I think that there's uh, you know in um, in boxing there's there's the distinction between uh, a puncher and a, and a and a fighter or a puncher right. and a boxer. Um, so I mean which is to say some people just bang their way through a thing and other people really know what they're doing and elevate it to a, to a thing. But, um, uh, musicians at, at your level know the math behind it. And I'm, I've always been blissfully ignorant of that. I mean, in my, in my listening to, um, dancing in the dark, at least a thousand times in my life. I mean, it's, been out for 35 years now or, or yeah. even more um you know i i uh i, I would ne i never heard uh, a a sour note i mean you're not saying it's sour it was just or are you it was just different no i'm saying that it's 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 out of tune it's out of tune <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean the the uh the uh, electronics uh, of the recording process can sometimes compensate a little bit for that. If there's a lot of reverb, you may not hear it, but um, but I, I heard it right away. Anybody I know that plays a horn, they hear it right away. Uh, and it's just it's an imperfection of of the of the instrument. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I'm trying to think of what it was. I was listening to the other other day, and I and I, I heard the same thing where it, it just was somebody was either singing flat or playing flat and it's it's a curse because it's it's hard to just listen to music and enjoy it because you you know what's going on and uh you tend to listen with a critical ear versus just relaxing and enjoying the music yeah and and there's things i mean i certainly read like a writer i mean i think oh you shouldn't have you sh you know you're repeating that word you just used that same word three yeah. pages ago and come right. on you know you don't you know dig out the thesaurus um, but I, I think that everybody does that in their, for their, their, their profession. Uh, one of my dearest friends in the world is a mechanical engineer and we can't go out to eat without him telling you why, you know, why the return air vents are in the wrong place and how uh -huh. it would, how it would have been better, you know, if they'd have done this and that. And it's just like, really? I just. I just wanted the jalapeno poppers because, you know, <laughs> so, um, I, I was thinking, okay, so, um, a lot of eighties music, 
had um, a sax in it. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of it seemed to be a reaction to Springsteen's huge, everybody needs to put a sax in, right? But if you go back to like the 50s and the, and the 60s, a lot mm -hmm. of that early stuff, the sax was as inter, in, yeah. integral as, as the guitar was. Listen to Little Richard. A lot of his hits had sax solos in them, a lot of them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, um, you know, it's, it's funny because if you listen to the Beatles, which I do, I love the Beatles, um, their early stuff, they just took the sax out of it. They took other people's stuff and they took out the sax and it would, and it became different that way because they used a guitar solo instead of a horn solo. You know, Bill Haley in the comments, what, what would they have been without that, you know, rock around the clock, that sax solo in there that everybody knows. Night Train, songs like that. So if that came from the swing era. You had the big bands and then, uh -huh. and then after the war, uh, the, the, the bands got smaller. So Benny Goodman didn't, he, they still had a big band, but it was Benny Goodman Quartet, the Benny Goodman Quintet. And so then you had a limited amount of instruments soloing. You didn't have sections of instruments soloing. And then that evolved into rock and roll where uh, you had a horn player. And so every, every rock and roll band had a horn player at some point. And then the Beatles came along, they got rid of the horn player. Stones brought it back though. Yeah, yeah. Stones got back to the roots of it. I, th I thought it was funny that you should use brown sugar as a, as a toss off uh, example. And I thought, I mean, cause that's, that's a hot solo. It is. I love it's it. A hot, hot, yeah. That's Bobby Keys at his best. It's a, in my in my opinion one of the best um, saxophone solos in popular music ever. I mean, you know, Billy Joel, "Just the Way You Are." That's a beautiful solo, really melodic, fits perfectly. Um, jazz man, um, Carol King, um, uh, Mockingbird. I mean, those seventy songs: James Taylor, Carly Simon, Carol King. They all use the sax brilliantly. But when it comes to just punching through, that's Bobby Keys. Um, Whatever Gets You Through the Night by John Lennon. Uh, another one, fantastic sax solo all the way through. I think that's Bobby Keys actually playing that too on the, on the uh, record. Uh, and uh, live, it's um, the, the player from the Plastic Ono Band, uh, whose name escapes me right now. But yeah, I'm, but yeah like, you know, Pink Floyd uh, used saxophone brilliantly in their music. Dave Matthews used saxophone brilliantly. A lot of artists. Um, so, uh, let's see, Ian Hunter. The, okay, so there's there's a type of, yeah. well, well, okay, so the 80s produced a lot of a really lame uh, uh, sax usage, yeah. in yes. my view. You belong, you belong to the city. Oh, great example. Yeah. Uh, see, I was thinking of, uh, th there was... Um, a band called Quarter Flash out yes. of, I think, Vancouver. Pardon my heart, whatever it is. Yeah. 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 And, See, and I was, that's when I was the most active in music. And, and that stuff plagued me because a, a lot of times, you know, we were playing stuff that was either original music or it was R&B, swingish, and it wasn't that. And a lot of times, you know, they come up during the break, can you play Quarter Flash? Uh, yeah, no, I can't. Uh, I can. But I <laughs> Thank you. No, thank you. 
<laughs> what was it? There's that scene in um, uh, uh, what was the musical uh, La La Land, where uh, yeah. she she gets the guy to to play um, Iran uh, by yeah, and Iran. Uh, flock yeah, of seagulls. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so so uh, in the seventies, Ian Hunter had a song called "All the Way to Memphis." Yep. Okay, and, and it, it. it's it's a really high, um, screechy. Yeah, yeah, and, and it and it, um, it it's not pleasing to my ear. Now, is that would that be an alto sax? Uh, I believe actually that's a tenor. Let me uh, let me double check that one. Um, I actually remember trying to play that a long, long time ago. Um, I would love, I don't know how royalties work or anything of the sort. I would love to be able to play, play that. Um, yeah, I think you can get away with 30 seconds of it without a problem. Okay. Also, so I don't, learn, I don't remember who that sax player was. I'd have to look it up. I'm looking it up now. That's all right. So, um, more uh, now nah, these websites are cl clickbait. Yeah, you know, the okay, you know, this must be the genius of the algorithm. But every web page I go to now wants to tell me about the 30 second stretch that will heal your back forever. I mean, every single one, <laughs> and like, I haven't. I haven't searched for a bad back, though I have one. As it turns out, I'm, I'm becoming. Uh, I, I I can't remember. I think it was somebody that I knew. Um, in, he was either from like up north, like Fort Collins or Greeley, or maybe from Wyoming. But um, there, there were guy. There would be guys who would get up early just to watch other guys get up <laughs> because they were so busted up and they were, they were so obviously pained in, in, in waking up and getting going with the day that it would, it would um, uh, please the other cowboys to have a look at them. Anyway, I'm kind of afraid I may be that guy. I don't think it's a genius of the algorithm. I think it's an invasion of your privacy. Uh, tomato, tomato, Chris, but, um, <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, just, I mean, just my age, I mean, it's not exactly, um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've never, I've never searched for over 40 singles either. Um, and yet there they are. So it may just be a demographic, um, uh, sh sure. Yeah. Not, not. I'm on, I'm on the same okay. list, Jeff. Like I, I have this, I get the same ads of some guy stretching on a chair or something. Yeah. And it's, so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we said something on a podcast that got out there and they linked this together. <laughs> no, I, I get all those too. Even, even, I think that what it is is they somehow they, they know what age group you're in and, and guess, that you have back problems. So his name was Peter Christlieb, born in 1945, jazz bebop, West Coast jazz, hard bop tenor saxophonist. Played with Count Basie, Louis Belson, wow, Chet Baker, Tom Waits, Steely Dan, Wayne Marr, Stock Severinsen. 
he's played on a lot of stuff. That's pretty good. That's pretty good is right. Um, wow. He's got quite the resume. Surprised I didn't know him. Um, so, so what? Ian Hunter just brought him in to play. Yeah, studio song. musician. Yeah, that's that's a good gig. I I was fortunate enough to do that on and off over the years. Come in and come in and record, and they pay you for it, and then you leave. Um, it's uh, it it can be lucrative. Um, it can also be frustrating because you're not really part of anything there. You're just a hired hand. But um, but it was fun. I've done it several times. So I, I, I just, I want to know how Brian feels about being in the same demographic cohort as uh, Chris Galley and I, yeah. uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, yeah. physical fitness. I think when you cross a certain age, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's like a big difference between a five-year-old and a 10-year-old, right? Yeah. Once, once you cross a certain threshold, they're like, ah. Yeah, 40. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> You're pretty much the same as a guy who's 55. Uh, I, I see. I, I always go back to Charles Barkley, who said, once you turn 50, you could drop dead of anything, and nobody's really going to be surprised. <laughs> George Martin said that once you turn 80, stuff starts dropping off you, so you have to retire. <laughs> George George Martin, the uh, George Martin, yeah, the direct director of the Beat uh, producer, yeah, Beatles albums, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so um, uh, so uh, the last time we uh, Brian and I were together, uh, uh, he had some technical difficulties, and I was just in the middle of talking about seven days in May. Have you seen this, Chris? Um, it's old, isn't it? It's yeah, it's old. It's yeah. like it's like from '61. I think. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I mean, um, I can't tell you last time I saw it, but yeah, I saw it. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, I heard I, people at work were talking, and they're like, uh, a woman is talking about um, showing her kids the classics. And um, another guy, and, and she named some things that were okay, but I wouldn't really call them classics. And then a guy says, um, uh, wh what about Dances with Wolves? I think, I mean, that was like, what, 1990? So. Yeah, one of my favorite movies. I love it. Yeah, okay. I, but the, ending's hard. the ending's hard, but it's, it's such a well-done movie. And, and I read the book first. Uh, it is... Very close to the book. Blake, right? A guy named Blake? Blake, yeah. 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 Very close to the book. The difference is, though, in the book, it, it was not Sue. It was Comanche. Um, but as far as the storyline goes, it was uh, pretty spot on. Uh, that's actually kind of a major difference because the Comanche were really fierce. Uh, yeah, they were. They were. And they... they um, and then, of course, the Pawnee were the, the turncoats uh, in, in both the book and in the movie, um, which I think there was some truth to that as well. Okay. Um, so I've been trying to watch older movies. I got, I bought, uh, I've been, been on something of a buying spree. I'm going to have to shut that down. But um, 
I got, uh, uh, I bought Seven Days in May, uh, which was interesting because uh, there was great disenchantment with um, a, a lefty peacenik uh, president. Um, and there was talk of impeachment and there were protests that were turning violent and just parts of it seemed really on a little too on the nose. Um, and then uh, Burt Lancaster was great. Kirk Douglas was great. Uh, and, and part of it really uh, came across like um, an, an intrigue version, uh, a suspenseful intrigue uh, episode of the West Wing. Um, a high, highly idealized um, president with, uh, um, you know, a, a very supportive staff around him, uh, you know, and then Bert Lancaster trying to overthrow the government. Right. But here's the thing, and this is what, this is what sells it. Ava Gardner has, <laughs> has a role. I'm telling you, she was great. She was so beautiful. Yeah. Even at 42, she's probably a couple pounds over, over what Hollywood would like her to be. But she was really something. So, so, I, I, I went on, I went looking at the movies she made, and I just ordered the DVD for 55 Days in Peking, which is uh, Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner and David Niven, and it takes place in the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, and uh, um, I, I, I'm, I am 100% sure that we don't want to get our history from 55 days at Peking. Um, though I read a book, and actually I re reviewed a book uh, called The Boxer Rebel Rebellion by a woman I think named Diana Preston. And it was a really interesting period. It was what, like all the colonial powers were in China. They wanted to do to China what they had done in Africa, which is to say, chop it up and claim it yeah. as their own. And this this group called the they were called boxers because like whatever martial art they did uh, struck Westerners like they were boxing but they were they were really fierce even fanatical and um anyway so so i get on e okay so the, you can't get it on itunes so i'm looking f on ebay for the uh the dvd and um uh i got a apparently it's a south korean production because um, there is some English on the 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 cover, uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of Korean too, and that reminded me of um, when I lived in Portland and I wrote for that newspaper. I would take uh, issues around to different establishments, including there was a Korean video uh, rental place. But every time you walked in. They weren't really renting videos so much as duplicating them like, uh. like there was no tomorrow, right? So they had these uh. banks of uh, 
VCRs yeah. to VCRs, you know, and they were like doing it at, like at a high speed. And, uh, you know, I wasn't paid to, uh, uh, you know, uh, invade on the sketchiness of, uh, right. Yeah. You know, but, uh, so anyway, I, I've been busy. I got it the other day and I'm hoping it's, uh, at least the scenes with, uh, 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 Ms. Um, uh, Gardner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those are Sounds good. Yeah. Um, she, she seemed a little, so in, um, so in the early sixties, uh, as I say, she was in her early forties. Uh, she, I think, so. I think she was, she was born in 1941. No, Ava Gardner so. was born in, in uh, 25. Let's see. Well, you can see if you want, but I looked it Me up. Too. 1922. Okay. 1922. I stand corrected. Okay. Well, because she was married. So I, I sit corrected. Because she, she was married to Sinatra for yeah, like seven right. years. I don't know what I was thinking. That's all right. Well... Well, you know, She's five foot six. <laughs> She's well, married to Mickey Rooney. She couldn't be all all, all, all that good. Uh, Artie Shaw, yeah, he got around. Artie, Artie did all right. Artie was well, so, did Ava, so did Ava Gardner. I mean, she yeah. she had. I mean, a lot of people talk about how Marilyn Monroe had. Uh, well, she was married to DiMaggio and Arthur yeah. Miller. Um, right. and, and somebody else who was like just the top, I mean, so Arthur Miller and DiMaggio, arguably the two greatest at their chosen fields during their time. Right. Yeah. Um, Ava Gardner with Sinatra, Artie Shaw, I wouldn't put Mickey Rooney as the best, you know, of his time, but, um, um, she, yeah, she was, so, so I'm just saying in, in seven days in May, she really plays a woman who has been around the block and having just been married to Sinatra for seven years, she, she probably wasn't necessarily stretching. Um, that was by several accounts, I think a tempestuous relationship. Yeah. I, I read a book called The Rat Pack a few years ago by a guy named Sean Levy. He's a journalist out of Portland, so it's okay to hate him and not read his book. But um, this was, it was interesting. It was interesting about uh, Sinatra and Dean Martin and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. The other guys were kind of uh, uh, interchangeable. Um, Jimmy Bishop and Peter Lawford. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, jo Joey Bishop um, was apparently um, okay not being part of the Rat Pack. Though there's a hilarious joke. Um, I think Dean Martin said at, a, at an appearance that Joey couldn't be here tonight. He hurt his back bowing in Frank's presence. Um, that's a pretty good line. But I'm not sure. But... but, but Levy's book uh, made it sound like uh, Joey Bishop just, you know, he was okay. He could, he could take it or leave it. Peter Lawford sounded like real damaged goods. 
and um, he really wanted to be with the cool kids and and they were kind of okay without him. Well, yeah, and I, I've, I've read several places and saw it on these TV dramas about Lawford um, schmoozing Sinatra strictly to get Kennedy elected. Oh, really? Just using, yeah, that he was using him. Dean Martin told Frank that this guy Lawford, he, he isn't, he's not one of us. He's just using you to get his, his brother-in-law elected. Um, did he drink himself to death or was it, were there drugs involved? Peter Lawford? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would guess drink. He probably looked down on people who did drugs, you know, like Marilyn Monroe. Poor thing. Was he, wasn't he the first one to find her? Peter Lawford? Yeah. yeah I read oh, that I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was the first one to find her. I don't know if it's true or not, but... All, all of that gets so sorted. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you get... So so here's the thing. Um, you know, Spring, I, I read an, art, uh, an interview with Springsteen in the 80s. He said, trust the art, not the artist, uh, which sounds like something Springsteen would say, even though he's probably not that bad of a guy. Um, but with, you know, with Sinatra, I mean, he's just, the, just a voice for the ages. I mean, I really think that the world keeps spinning 500 years from now, people are going to be going back to recordings of Sinatra in his prime and saying, this is what the human voice can do. I think that about Ella Fitzgerald too. Uh, I don't really think people will do that about Dean Martin, though I like Dean Martin. Yeah, I mean, like him or not, um, Sinatra's style of singing was groundbreaking. And, uh, and it spawned a lot of imitators. Uh, I don't think Jerry Vale or Perry Como would have had careers if it weren't for Sinatra. Tony Bennett would not have. He admits that. Um, well, Al Martino and those secondary singers. Sure. Uh, Mario Lanza. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great voices, great singers, but... The genre Vic, wasn't there for them. Did you mention Vic Damone? No, but uh, he's another one. I said Al Martino. Um, who Al Martino can't get Vic Damone. Yeah, well, Al Martino played Sinatra in The uh, Godfather. Oh, is that who that was? In the third one, yeah, Al Martino. Brian, Brian what's your favorite line from that, that scene with the, the, that guy? Leave is this a movie? No, what? What's your favorite line? Is this a movie, The Godfather? Is that what you're talking about? So I have here <laughs> at my desk, The Godfather <laughs> classic quotes. Never tell anybody outside the family what you're thinking again. Okay? Good advice. <laughs> I have a sentimental weakness for my children, and I've spoiled them, as you can see. They talk when they should listen. But anyway, Senor Solozzo, my no is final, and I wish to congratulate you on your new business. I know you'll do very well, and good luck, especially since your interests don't conflict with mine. Um, uh, yeah, the... Um, uh, I remember you and I talking about this... Um, uh, years ago, Chris, uh, 
I, I don't even know how that movie would get an R rating if it was released today. I, I really, I, 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 it, it is the weakest R classification I have ever seen. I, I wonder if it was done for marketing. I, I almost wonder. Like, like, it, how, it, like Howard Hughes and Jane Russell, hey, uh, the film is delayed because of the censors. That was nonsense. They, were, they had production issues. Yeah. But he created excitement for the movie as if there was something so racy in it. And then everybody went to see it and the film made a fortune. Uh, that was Outlaw Woman or something like that? Yeah, which is on the, the Bale of Hay or whatever yeah. it was in the barn, yeah. Jane Russell. Yeah. She was a fulsome gal. <laughs> um, she was a dolly partner of her day. Uh, what was... Um, I what what did we watch? Julian and I watched something. We watched. It, this has been years. It's been a few years ago. Um, it it may even have been gentlemen prefer blondes. Is that is that all right? So like, is that a deal where like um, Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell are on a ship across the Atlantic? Are they on a ship? I don't remember that part, but I know they were both in it. Well, the. Okay, so whatever movie I'm thinking of, um, there's a, they're on with the American Olympic team, which is a contrivance. And because Jane Russell has a big song and dance number, and um, all of a sudden there's a bunch of dudes like dancing and throwing themselves around. And, and we're watching this, and Ju Mrs. Winger says, are they tumbling? And, 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 and they were, they were tumbling, which is just not something that I've heard much about since I got out of it in like second grade elementary school gym class. <laughs> that maybe that's how I wrecked my, my, uh, my back and everything else was, was all the, the degree to which I, uh, you know, if, if I hadn't gotten out of it, um, just think I might be in even worse shape now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I can't, I can't really remember. I, you know what? I love the American songbook. I absolutely love it, but it's really hard for me to sit down and watch a musical. Uh, the, uh, I think Tom Hanks said it on Letterman a hundred years ago. He said, just, Busting into song and dance for no damn reason is just just doesn't make any sense to him. It's yeah, I, the modern musical, and I say modern meaning, you know, from the '90s up to now, um, I find really hard to listen to because they some of them they like uh, Phantom of the Opera. Every single line had to be sung. I mean, really. Just, just say the line. Hey, I got a letter. Now they have to sing. I got a letter. Um, that was that's that causes fatigue. Um, what was the other one I saw? Miss Saigon was like that too. Just way, way over the top. Brian, what do we know the, about Miss Saigon? The interesting thing, and not a lot of people know this about Miss Saigon, is that they actually crashed a helicopter into the stage during yes. the Broadway production. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And, and Brian, what, in, in the 1938 
musical theater hit Showboat. What happened mm -hmm. then? They actually crashed. Not a lot of people know this. They actually crashed a showboat into the stage <laughs> during the Broadway production. <laughs> so, so, you know, I don't mind. I'll even go. I'll even go to. Um, uh, you know, a musical, you know, we, we, uh, an American in Paris was here in Dallas a few years ago, a couple years yeah. ago. We went to that. That was great. And, and one of my favorite songs ever, uh, they can't take that away from me. Yeah. Uh, comes from that song or yeah. comes from that, that show. But, um, yeah, Andrew Dice Weber, uh, is not my favorite, uh, composer by any means. Andrew Dice Weber. <laughs> Both offensive. <laughs> so, so Brian, uh, Showboat trivia. Um, the, the movie Showboat. Did you see it? No, I, I'm 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 a live action guy only. So, uh, Brian, maybe Chris would be interested to know that your daughter has a uh, season pass to uh, to Broadway HD. So, what are they doing Which, since Broadway shut down because of COVID nineteen? So Broadway, it's just, it's just recordings from, from Broadway shows over the years. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Showboat trivia, Chris? Well, I was going to ask, do you know what the most popular song was from Showboat? I do. You do, don't you? But I'm don't old. Remember. I'm old. Yeah. Sinatra's version is not the best. No, it isn't. Paul Robeson's version is the best. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Um, Old Man River, Brian. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was right there. You, you, uh, you almost bailed me out there, Jeff, by saying I'm old, and I was picking up what you were laying down, so... Oh, <laughs> no, you're giving me entirely too much credit. I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm old. My, I, I, get, I get clickbait for backstretches, so no, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're giving me credit for playing like you know three dimensional chess, and I don't deserve. I'm I'm old, but I just keep rolling along. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, that was written by Edna Ferber, who also wrote Giant, right. which which I, I watched um, this year. And I, I, my mom loved that movie. And then I think forgot about it. Um, and then I, I watched it. it. It was an epic in its way, but um, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have guessed about, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed about Rock Hudson. No, engine neighbors. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I mean, I wouldn't have guessed from Giant, certainly. Um, right. Uh, if you ever get a chance to rewatch an episode or two of Macmillan and Wife. Yeah. Um, Rock Hudson plays the police commissioner of San Francisco. Yeah. So in the first episode, where did I, I don't know. I'm a, I don't know where I watched, I saw this. Um, it was on one of the streaming networks, I'm sure. Um, but John Shuck, a yep. television character actor. And also a Klingon, but go ahead. John Shuck played a Klingon? Oh yeah, two of the Star Trek movies. 
Oh, in the movies? Yes. Bigger payday. Okay. Klingon ambassador. <laughs> okay. <But> go ahead. <laughs> well, so he was... So they're trying to solve a murder. So, so uh, John Shuck, the character actor, is playing um, Commissioner McMillan's aide-de-camp. Aide-de-camp, sidekick, yeah. Yeah, figurative aide-de-camp, as it's used here, Chris. Yeah, understood. Yeah. So he says, um, so like solving a murder, and they say, uh, John Shuck goes, uh, so you think we got time for a schwitz? And, and, and Rock Hudson's like, yeah, probably. So next scene, they're in a bathhouse taking a... Taking yes, a I remember that episode. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, I'm sure you'll still get the, uh, get the murder solved in the allotted 49 minutes minus <laughs> commercials, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the sense of urgency. Also, I'm, I'm sure it was uh, the first time a television audience was introduced to the, um, uh, the San Francisco public bathhouse. Yeah, are, are there any left? The, the name shuttle. You know, I started a, a, of, of some interest, I think especially because of the pandemic, but I started reading And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz about the mm -hmm. AIDS epidemic. Yeah, it, it's it's terrific. I mean, it's it's some tough reading because it really describes some very very sick people, uh, and that's just that's not my bag. I I, I don't I don't like medicine per se because there's you know there's all these sick people and stuff. But uh, the National Institute of Health is kind of like this academy on a vast hilly green lush campus. Whereas the CDC gets stuff done, but then there's political overtones. And then there was uh, the pressure of uh, New York and San Francisco gay culture where these guys had been in the closet. They feel like they'd been forced in the closet their whole life. Now they were out and they were going to live how they wanted to live. And so even when serious people even from the community said hey there's something going on here um some guys wouldn't dial it down so uh for those who don't know uh sometimes yeah, with a good conversation like this one i forget that there's other people going to be listening in but uh and the band played on is about the aids epidemic in the in the 80s actually Schultz makes the argument that it goes back further than that. And he talks about New okay. York in mm -hmm. 1976 ships from all over the world mm -hmm. came into New York Harbor for the right. American bicentennial. And so that was um, just a lot of seafaring men yeah. um, coming, coming together from all points of the compass. I read where it actually stems back to 1969 and they had, they named the patient that he had a, an un, an unidentifiable um, autoimmune disease and that uh, all the symptoms were pointing to AIDS. In fact, if uh, occasionally, you know, Saturday Night Live will, will show reruns of the early shows. The one from the early mid-70s that Lily Tomlin is in, 
uh, and this is before she told the world that she was gay. Um, there is a scene, I think it's the opening scene where she, it's like she's in a musical and she has her posse with her and they go outside and most of her posse were gay, gay men. Uh, similar to Judy Garland, she had that kind of following. Um, there's the, the end scene where she is out on the street. There's a guy behind her and he clearly looks like he is infected with AIDS. Clearly. I mean, you know, that gaunt face that, that, that they get before their body starts breaking down on them. Uh, and I wonder just uh, how prevalent it was. You know, growing, growing up in New York City um, in the 60s, and we moved to New Jersey in the early 72, um, but, but it's still Metro New York. You, you know, every, everybody knows everything that's going on around there. Uh, I seriously doubt that it, it was a disease of the 80s. Um, I just knew too many people who, um, who had these strange things and they died and they were gay. Um, and there was a, com a community in Asbury Park, still is, Asbury Park is, is, has now openly known as a gay town. Back in the, in the 70s and early 80s, it was known, but it was whispered. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had, uh, they, they, M&K was a famous gay bar there. Um, and you know, there's one one uh, part of it was uh, men, the other part was women, and and but it was one of those places where anybody went. They they didn't discriminate. It's just that where where they like to hang out. Um, but there were stories about it then, back in like eighty eighty one. Uh, I can remember hearing things. And so when AIDS you know burst onto the scene, it was already there. Um, it's just. You, I, and I don't know if it was the Olympics. Uh, it was. It was also um, flight attendants that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and in 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 and the band played on. That was the. Um, uh, it was a. I, I think the patient zero, maybe officially, uh, was um, a flight attendant from Quebec who was yeah. a good-looking guy and just yeah. prolific up, um, yeah. every, everywhere he went. Um, and, you know, look, that, that's, that's perfectly believable. I mean, that something could be uh, fermenting under the surface, but then, it, you know, you don't pay any attention until you do. Well, here it is again with COVID-19. It's exactly exactly what happened. This is not a new disease. Um, no, it's just this year's model. It, well, it's yeah, but it's also um, you know uh, poor hygienic practices that enabled it to incubate in such a large area, and then the normal uh, spreading of things by air, sea, and and train or whatever. Um, and also, I think poor hygiene, um, I, men not washing their hands, it's, uh, I, hope, I hope that changes. Uh, people digging in their nose and then shaking somebody's hand, I hope that ends forever. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, no, uh, the, the uh, uh, um, well, anybody that's used a public restroom has been disappointed in their fellow man mm -hmm. to to a degree that I just don't think there's any coming back from that. 
as far as far as blows to the spirit go. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 um, Tom Wolfe wrote uh, about the in in the '60s. Like I don't know if it was the hippies in Haight Ashbury or in New York, but like like communal living among hippies was so bad mm-hmm. and things that had been gone for years. Right. Um, I mean, essentially eradicated from human experience, uh, things called the grunge, the crud, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, made a comeback just because, yeah. Tuberculosis. Well, yeah, those don't have the same folksy um, yeah, yeah. name that, you know, that happens if you just stop taking baths. Um, but, you know, look at look at those guys in Seattle, which, yeah. you know, which which I think is like a really upsetting deal. Uh, it's just that um, nobody's covering it about, except Fox News and I refuse to get my news from uh, Fox News, but uh, taken over. Well, for one thing, the the city seems to have folded like a card table before a bunch of radicals. is It's unbelievable. I mean, who would have thought? So we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, it's a, it's a sad, sad situation. You know, working for a company that's headquartered there, where the bulk of employees are. We oh, hear, right. I hear daily of um, stories of bad things happening but yeah i think i think it will result in a public health crisis i think you're right um anarchy uh, yeah there's certain things you just can't be free of you cannot be free of cleanliness because you will die it will kill you it will kill other people i mean you know that's just regardless of your what religious or political beliefs you have that's an absolute have you seen the bill gates uh, documentary on netflix uh, I haven't, but we don't have time to, and we, and we're not going to talk about it now because I got a hard out. Okay. But, so let's, yeah, let's, uh, let's write that down. We'll, we'll go back to it next time. All right. Um, so we've been talking to musician and other old guy, Chris Galley. I'm not Chris, old. And what? I'm what? not old. Okay, we'll say it in Spanish, which is Viejo. <laughs> so, so uh, you're you're you were you're just almost one of those old Italians who spends his days in the park playing a bocce ball. You're just almost right there. I saw them as a kid, and I thought I'll never be that person. <laughs> I can't wait to be that person. Are you kidding? <laughs> so, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for asking. Uh, Brian, I'll touch base with you later. Excellent. But, yeah, uh, but um, thanks. Uh, you know, we'll have to um, rethink whether or not we want to identify you as uh, my aide de camp. Uh, mm-hmm. It could be it could be offending the pacifists in the audience, like like mm-hmm. the Alley. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the only one who actually was in the military, <laughs> FYI. Uh huh. 
Yeah, and and the Russians never got to New Jersey on your watch. Despite that, that's right. Despite that, and and uh, <laughs> you, you had a, um, a, a a Clapper Fifty Six. I, I had a I had a Mark Six. Mark Mark Six. Yeah. Silver Mark Six. Clapper, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I should put a clapper on my uh, on my video camera. Jeff, Go Jeff. Out. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, Chris, Chris spent 20 good minutes talking about some of the really fine, interesting points about this very intricate piece of art. Yeah. He referred to it as a clapper 50. And he just, yeah, just flushed it down the tubes. Unbelievable. <laughs> Take it easy. I told you I wasn't good at the math stuff. <laughs> Okay, let's, you know, okay, so, so this has been managing expectations. <laughs> this has been managing expectations. Uh, Brian, thanks, thanks for uh, being here. Happy to be here. Good to be Good with to both you, Brian. Of you. Yeah, nice to see you too, Chris. All right, uh, so uh, on behalf of uh, managing expectations, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Um, let's go to work. Let's go to work.